0: We're going to start a new series this morning, uh, a five-week series going through the book of Jude. If you turn to the very back of the Bible um, and find Revelation, flip one more page to the left and you'll find the book of Jude. It's one of the smallest New Testament letters, but it is really just power-packed with application for uh, the New Testament church in the 21st century. And just by way of warning, we're going to slow things down a bit Uh, for the last year and a half or so as as we've gone through uh, the biblical genre of narrative, both in the book of Acts and in the book of Jonah, we've been uh, biting off some pretty significant chunks of scripture together, but the New Testament letters are a different genre and they are a lot more dense in their theological content and depth. And so we're going to slow things down and cover much less each week. In fact, this morning, we're just going to cover two verses. So we're not going to get very far this morning, but hopefully, by God's grace, it'll be fruitful. One of my favorite movies is Braveheart. Yes, he's going to do an analogy from Braveheart on Family Sunday. Mom and Dad, I'll leave that with you. In that famous battle scene, on one side of the battlefield is that ragtag mix of Scottish feudal lords and farmers who are gathered really as kind of a symbolic gesture in order to negotiate favorable terms of peace with the English. On the other side of the battlefield, the majestic and quite imposing army of ironclad infantry, archers, and cavalry serving King Edward I of England. Battle-tested, well-fortified, and supplied for war. The Scots are clearly overmatched and outnumbered, and they know it, and so they begin to leave the field of battle. But as they do... William Wallace addresses his countrymen in one of the most inspirational speeches in all of modern cinema, at least according to me. Here's what he says, sons of Scotland, I am William Wallace and I see before me a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. We've come here to fight as free men, and free men you are, but what will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? To which one of the farmers, farmers replies, no, we will run and we will live. And Wallace famously replies, I fight and you may die. Run. Run. And you'll live, at least for a while, and dying in your beds many days from now, would you be willing to trade all the days, from this day to that, for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take, see, you knew it too. My blood still starts pumping every time I think and watch that, think about and watch that scene. But what was William Wallace doing, or rather what was Mel Gibson doing as he portrayed William Wallace? He was reminding them of who they were, and he was reminding them of why it was important to fight. He says, you're my countrymen, you're the sons of Scotland, and you are free men, And he reminds them of why it was important not to run, but to fight against England. Because as free men, they had more to lose by not fighting than if they fought and died. He reminds them of how precious their freedom is and how worthy it is to fight to preserve it. And I think in many ways this mirrors what... Jude is writing about in this letter inspiring believers to contend for the faith to fight to preserve the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints not with sword and spear and not against flesh and blood but with and by truth because church the truth of our faith is on the battlefield. And it's being attacked on multiple fronts by formidable enemies. And, and in many ways, it may, it may seem as, as though we are outmatched and outnumbered on this battlefield. But Jude exhorts us here. He implores us to not run away, to not surrender or yield or retreat, but rather to stand and fight to contend for the faith because it is a precious gift worthy of being preserved for the glory of our king and the benefit of the generations that will come after us that is what the letter from jude is all about and so with that purpose of the letter in mind let's look now at the first two verses of the letter Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask in Jesus' name that you would speak to us from it and that you would equip and challenge this church to be ready to contend for the faith on the battlefield of ideas that we find ourselves in, in this culture and in this day. And may we do this for your glory, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read New Testament letters like Jude... The salutation and greeting that's at the beginning of the letter is much different than the salutation and greeting in our letters to one another if we ever write letters to one another. Our letters we begin with Dear John or Dear Mary and then we just launch right into the letter itself. But the New Testament letters are filled with content in their salutation and greeting. And, and the content of the salutation gives a foreshadowing of the content and purpose of the letter and a foreshadowing of the central themes that we find in the letter. And this salutation and greeting is no different. And so this is much more than just identifying who the author is, who the audience is, and the greeting itself. Jude is telling us something about his identity, how he sees himself. He's telling us something about how believers are to see themselves, what their identity in Christ is. And he's telling us something about the Christian life that we need in increasing measure if we are to be ones who will faithfully contend for the faith. So I want us to unpack these three parts of the greeting and then try to connect them to the purpose of the letter, which is, again, to inspire believers to contend for the faith when it is attacked both from within and without. So from verse one, we learn that the author's name is Jude. Now the word The name Jude is short for Judas, and you probably recognize that there are several Judases in the New Testament, and so who is this one? Probably the most famous or the most infamous Judas is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. This Jude can't be that Jude, because that Jude killed himself after he betrayed Jesus some 30 years prior in Jerusalem. But Judas Iscariot wasn't the only Judas that Jesus chose to be as one of his disciples. He also chose Judas, son of James. And again, this Jude can't be that Jude because this Jude is the brother of James, not the son of James. And so who is this James that he speaks of here? Well, since the writer clearly expects his audience and his readers to... Automatically know who James is without any other introductions. All commentators agree that this is James, the brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus had many brothers and many sisters, all of them younger brothers and sisters, born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born because Jesus was the firstborn of Mary. And in Matthew 13, verse 55, we're told several of the names of Jesus's brothers when the locals there in Nazareth recognize who Jesus is. They say, is, this not, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And according to the very next verse in Matthew 13, he also had many sisters And so this James that he speaks of here is one of the brothers of Jesus. He is the James who became prominent in the first century church, specifically in Jerusalem. He became what the apostles will call a pillar of the church. And he wrote the New Testament letter that bears his name. And this Jude is the brother of that James. And that James was also the brother of Jesus. And so consequently, the brother of my brother is my brother. So Jude is not just the brother of James. He is the brother of Jesus. Now, what do we know about Jesus's brothers? Well, one of the things we know is that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah from the beginning. And we can probably imagine why that was the case. Imagine, kids growing up with Jesus as your brother. He's always going to be smarter. He's always going to be wiser. He's always going to be the most obedient and well-behaved kid in your family. And you got to know that the other siblings of Jesus considered him to be mom and dad's favorite. Now kids, I know and you know that your mom and dad don't play favorites. They, They love all of you the same. But let's be honest. That's because Jesus isn't your brother. If he was, I can guarantee you, he would be their favorite. So I would imagine there was a good measure of jealousy involved. Sibling rivalry is in overdrive in their family growing up. And so when Jesus begins leading people, and he begins teaching people, and he begins, begins uh, claiming to be the son of God, I would imagine that there was a fair amount of eye-rolling among his brothers. Here he goes again. In fact, one, uh, at one point, Mark writes that his brothers thought that he had lost his mind. But somewhere between those Nazareth beginnings and the resurrection, his brothers came to believe that their brother, Jesus, was the Lord. He was Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to James And to all the apostles. He saw his brother come back from the dead. When we went through Acts, in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus ascended, the resurrected Jesus ascended back to the Father, the disciples were gathered together in the upper room there in Jerusalem, and they were praying. If you recall, Dr. Luke writes in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers and so his brothers including James including this Jude eventually came to believe that their brother Jesus was more than just a brother that he was the Lord that he was the long-awaited and promised Messiah that he was the Christ which by the way is really an incredible apologetic for Jesus's divinity that his brothers affirmed that that was the case of him. Listen, I've I've got two brothers. And I live with my brothers every single day of every year of my life until I got to be in 10th grade with one of my brothers, went off to college. I live with them every single day. I shared rooms with them. I saw What they did when mom and dad weren't looking. I saw everything. I know everything about them. I know things about them, and they know things about me that nobody else knows. And here's the thing even if one of them were to rise from the dead, I would say, Nope, he's not the Messiah because I know him. I saw his life. And I know that they sinned a lot, and they know the same about me. But here are Jesus' brothers, claiming that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Lord. And they saw his life and behavior more closely than anyone else on the face of the earth, including their mom. And yet their testimony to us is, in essence, yes, yes it makes sense. It makes sense. We see it now. We made fun of him at the time. We were jealous of him at the time. But now we see. Now we see that he actually had a father who's different from our father. His father is Yahweh, the Lord God. And now we see him resurrected. Not only did he never sin, not only did he never disobey mom and dad, He was always obedient. Now we see him resurrected with our own eyes. He is the Christ. My brother, our brother is Lord. What an incredible testimony about Jesus' divinity. And so Jude here, the younger brother of Jesus, the younger brother of also James, calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of Jesus. James, He can't even bring himself to identify himself as the brother of Jesus. And I don't think it's because of any kind of excessive humility. Rather, it's because his primary primary relationship and, and primary connection to Jesus was that of creation to creator, not just brother to brother. To him, to Jude jesus is his lord more than and before he is his brother and we see this all throughout this letter i would encourage you read this letter multiple times as we're going through it over the next few weeks and here jude the brother of jesus refer to his brother as jesus christ that's not their last name of their family that was a title the christ the anointed one the son of god the messiah Over and over again, twice in verse 1, again in verse 4, in verse 17, verse 21, and in the closing doxology of verse 25, Jude, the brother of Jesus, refers to his brother as the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew Jesus when he was young lived with Jesus during his teenage years. During those formidable years when there's so many opportunities for foolishness and being unwise and sinful, and yet he calls his brother the Lord Jesus Christ. Who do you call his brother? Who do you say Jude's brother is? Is he to you the Christ, the son of the living God? You see, Jude's salvation was not based on his familial connection with Jesus Even he, as Jesus' brother, had to trust in Jesus as his Lord and as his Savior. Have you done that? Have you come to put all of your faith in Christ Jesus, what he's done on the cross? If you haven't, then friend, I beg that you will this morning. Jude also identifies himself here as a servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word for servant here is doulos. It literally means bondservant or slave. It's one of the Apostle Paul's favorite ways of referring to himself as well in his letters. Over and over again, he calls himself the doulos of God, the bondservant of Christ. Slavery in first century occupied Israel was was a result of primarily two different things. Either one, it was a result of war, where those who were defeated serve as slaves to the victors, or it was a means by which someone could work their way out of debt. They could pay back their debt. They could sell themselves into slavery in order to pay back their debt. And when a slave who was in debt to someone else was sold into slavery, the one who purchased the slave absorbed that debt. They, were, they, they redeemed them from that debt. And so Jude says, my brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, has purchased me. He has redeemed me, He's purchased me from slavery to sin and death. And now I serve him. I voluntarily and gladly serve him as a bond slave. I'm his servant. And those who come to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, likewise, are purchased and purchased with a very, very high cost to the Father. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, Knowing that you were ransomed, that word means purchased, that you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And with what were we purchased? With what were we redeemed? Well, he says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And as we mentioned earlier, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So as those who have been redeemed, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now we are his bondservants. We are now the bondslaves of Christ, gladly and joyfully, because once we were bondslaves to sin. Paul speaks of the believer being a bondservant of Christ in Romans 6. Listen to what he says. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, because you were purchased, because you were redeemed, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then verse 20 and following, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which now you are shamed? For the, for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and it's end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As his bondservants, purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ, we now get to faithfully, gladly, joyfully serve our master we do his bidding now not our own now how does all of this connect with the purpose of the letter Jude says Jesus is my brother but much more important than that he is my Lord and I am his servant so how does Jude's identity Help us contend for the faith when it is attacked both from within and without. Well, it helps because it helps us to know whose we are, who we belong to. The peasants who gathered on the battlefield with William Wallace needed to know if they belonged to Scotland or England. They needed to know whose they were knowing that they were Scots, gave them an identity that told them that their marching orders didn't come from King Edward I, but from William Wallace. And as Christians, as those who wear the name of Christ in our very identity, we belong to Jesus We are his bondservants, his slaves. We live to serve him. And so when the faith, once delivered to the saints, is being attacked either from within or without, we engage in that battle with our eyes fixed on our master, Jesus. And we want nothing more than to be counted as faithful servants of him. That was Jude's identity. And it should be our identity as well. Now, our, our identity as believers is developed further as Jude goes on to identify his audience in this letter. In the second half of verse 1, he says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Most New Testament letters are written to specific churches or groups of churches or specific individuals, but this letter is somewhat unique in that it is written to believers in general. There's no indication here of uh, a specific location or or church or person. Uh, Instead, this is addressed to believers in a generic sense. In other words, all believers in all places at all times. And Jude gives us three descriptors of followers of Christ, of believers in Jesus. They are called, they are beloved in God the Father, and they are kept for Jesus Christ. And so this is part of our identity as believers. And so I want us to dive into what each of these means because they speak to who we are as followers of Jesus. First, we are called. Now, what does he mean when he says, we are called? Well, what he's speaking of here is the call of God to salvation. The calling to belong to God through faith in his son, Jesus. Now, we don't have time to do a full word study of the word called, but it is a fascinating study if you have time to do that. But I want you to just listen to some of what the Apostle Paul has to say about this calling first at the outset of the book of romans as that salutation and greeting is taking place which is much longer than this one he says beginning in verse five through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to jesus christ And then his audience, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. And so God calls believers to himself. He calls unregenerate sinners, he calls them to belong to himself. He calls them to faith in Jesus Christ. He calls them to be his saints. Well, now how effective is that calling when that calling happens? Listen to what Paul writes later in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We have stated that over and over again in here as we uh, affirm the sovereignty of God, that he works all things together for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And the purpose he speaks of there is not where you're going to work and where you're going to live, but rather your purpose as a person created in the image of God, made to worship and glorify God and enjoy him forever. You are called into that purpose. But then he explains this further in verses 29 and 30. He says, for those whom he foreknew, and when we see the word foreknew in the New Testament, think the word foreloved. It's not just knowledge ahead of time. This is him loving us ahead of time. Those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who be justified, he also glorified. This is known as the golden chain of redemption. And none is lost all the way through. All who are predestined are also called. All who are called are justified. All who are justified are also glorified. None is lost all the way through. And so all those who are called were also predestined and will also necessarily be justified and be glorified one day. In other words, God's call in this sense is always 100% effective. All those whom he calls to faith in Jesus will be saved now what do we do about jesus's comment in matthew 22 when he says many are called but few are chosen doesn't that infer that not all those who are called will also end up being saved well yes and no first when jesus said many are called but few are chosen note that some are in fact chosen And so that verse itself cannot be used to argue against unconditional election. But what about the called who are not chosen? And how do we reconcile that with Paul's assertion elsewhere in Romans that all who are called will also be justified and glorified? Well, scholars differentiate between what's known as the external call and the internal call. The external call is given to all who hear a proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed to all. That is the external call. When we share Christ and share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and co-workers, we extend an external call to everyone. But then the Lord God gives an internal call. That Paul speaks of here, that Jude speaks of in this letter, to those he's calling inwardly to himself. And when the gospel is extended to them, they will necessarily and eventually all respond in faith and be saved. So we can say that all those whom he calls inwardly will be saved. Now does that mean that man bears no responsibility in responding to that call? No. Paul addresses that as well in 1st Chapter 1, the beginning of that letter, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's the inward call, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So who will be saved? All those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? All those whom the Lord God calls to be His. So God's inward calling to sinners like us to be saved is always 100% effective. And the means of its effectiveness is to inwardly call the called to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to respond in repentance and be saved. And this inward calling, amazingly, to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was a, was a calling that was given to us, or we might say was determined to be given to us before any of us ever drew our first breath. Paul writes to Timothy in his last letter to him, 2 Timothy 1, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And when did that purpose and grace come? Which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Friend, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is because God determined before the ages began to call you to faith in his son Jesus Christ. He called you to belong to him, to be one of his saints before you drew your first breath. Not only are believers called, but they're also loved. Now, it is true that God loves everyone, but he does not love everyone the same way, church. God loves all people without discrimination all throughout the world, every single person Through the common graces of his kindness, his generosity, and his patience. But God sets his redeeming love and his redeeming grace only on those whom he has called to be his. To the called, God loves with a steadfast, unconditional, never-ending, regenerating, and preserving love. And church, we don't deserve any of it. The love He extends to us is not given to us because of what we do or who we are or how we live. Rather, it's given simply according to His sovereign grace. There's nothing that we can do to earn it, and there's nothing that we can do to lose it. Our Creator God determined to love us specifically and savingly in eternity past. And we see his love most tangibly and most remarkably in the cross. As Paul says in Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are called, we are loved, and thirdly, we are kept. Oh, what a glorious truth this is, church. We are kept. The word here for kept means preserved or guarded, And Jude writes that believers are kept for Jesus Christ. He's talking about us being preserved and guarded in the faith to the very end. And we know this to be the case because of what we just read earlier from Romans chapter 8. And that golden chain of redemption whereby none is lost. All who are predestined are also called. All who are called are also justified. All who are justified are also glorified. None is lost. We're kept to the end. And none is lost because we are kept for Jesus Christ. Now, Bible scholars will go back and forth as to whether the syntax here suggests the preposition for or by. Are we kept for Jesus Christ or by Jesus Christ? The ESV will include in the notes it might be by. But it really doesn't matter because either way, the determining agent in that is God. We are kept by God. Ultimately, we are not the determining agent in our being kept and preserved and guarded in the faith to the very end. God is. And yet we have a role. We do have a role in our own persevering, or else Jude would not later say in this very letter in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Now we're going to talk about what it means for us to keep ourselves in the love of God, in a couple of weeks but for now we can say that 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 while we have some role some participation and and partnership in our own persevering faith ultimately it is god himself who ensures that we will in fact persevere to the very end listen to the words of jesus in john 10 john 10 verses 27 through 29 is one of the sweetest promises from our Redeemer that speaks to his work in persevering us to the end. He says, Jesus says to us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. There's that, there's that inward call. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a glorious and reassuring thought. That, that once we are His, we're His. And that no one, no one, not even ourselves, can snatch us out of His hands. Praise be to God for that. 1 Peter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, where, where the Apostle Peter exalts God for this glorious salvation that's been given to us. And one of the reasons he he, he thinks it's so glorious is because it's kept not by our power, but by God's power. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. There again is that inward calling to faith. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded, kept, preserved through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed so our inheritance as co-heirs of christ an inheritance that he says is imperishable undefiled and unfading it's waiting for us It's being kept in heaven for us who by whose power god's power are being guarded preserved kept until the very end but we do have a role a participation in our being kept to the very end because he says we're being guarded by god's power and through faith through continuing to believe and trust and the faith there that he's referring to is our persevering faith in Christ and so friends we have a responsibility to keep believing to keep faithing to keep trusting in Christ but ultimately we are being guarded by God's power so this, there's this partnership there's this there's this participation that's at play here that we have to keep faithing but ultimately it's him that's work, at work here, here's what here's how Paul describes this when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 2 verse verses 12 and 13 he says therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling that's a command He wants them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. That's their work. That's our work. That's our role. How are we going to do that? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, keep believing. Keep fighting the fight of faith. For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, For his good pleasure. So, those who are called by God inwardly and savingly to faith in Jesus Christ are also loved by God with a redeeming, regenerating, and never ending love. And we are also kept for and by the Lord, by his power, not our own, and for his good pleasure and glory and our supreme joy. Church, we are called, we are loved, and we are kept. And these three are summarized I think beautifully in the closing words of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians his first one. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Praise God. So church, why does Jude begin his letter this way? Laboring to fortify for his readers how they see themselves. What difference does it make that as believers we see ourselves as called, loved, and kept? Well, again, the purpose of the letter is to inspire believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints when it is being attacked both from within and without. And we'll talk about what it means next week to contend for the faith. But whatever it means to know that our identity is that of being called, loved, and kept encourages us that what He calls us to be, what He calls us to do in contending for the faith is something that we can do simply because of who He has made us to be. We can and will contend for the faith because... He's called us. He loves us. And he will keep us. And as we step out in faith to contend for the faith, we know that ultimately no matter how hard it gets, no matter how fierce that battle becomes, we will not be destroyed and we will not be lost because we are called, we are loved, and we are kept, church. And then finally, Jude issues his greeting in verse two. The beginning of verse one, he identifies himself as the author, and in so doing, he tells his readers whose they are. They are the Lord's, and they are his servants. The second half of verse one, he identifies the readers as those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he tells his readers who they are. And now in verse two, Jude issues his greeting. And the greeting comes in the form of a prayer, a prayer wish on behalf of his readers. So what does Jude pray for his readers? May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So here Jude is telling his readers not just what they have because of their faith in Christ, but what they must continue to receive over and over and over again Daily, if they are to faithfully contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Mercy. We know what mercy is. Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. As sinners, rebels against God, what we deserve is judgment and eternal punishment. But by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we don't get what we deserve. Instead, God mercifully pours out his wrath on his very own son on our behalf. And spares us from what we deserve. God's mercy. But in order to contend for the faith and oppose the false teachers and oppose the false teaching and resist it and resist the the influence and temptation of the ungodly, they are going to need an abundance of God's mercy more and more and more. Peace with God. God. Peace with God is granted to those who are enemies of God by grace through faith in Jesus. But when false teachers attack the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, this is going to bring division and strife into the church. And so his readers will need peace multiplied. And God's love. Of course, God's love is ours through faith in Jesus, displayed perfectly at the cross. We know we have God's love because of what Christ has done for us. And yet false teachers who were infiltrating the church at this time cared only for themselves. And so the believers would need God's love in an increasing measure. And so Jude prays for his readers and we ought to pray for ourselves and for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to us. And this prayer is offered to God because only He can grant these virtues. And only He can cause these virtues to be so multiplied to us that they begin to characterize who we are so that we'll be the kind of people who will faithfully, courageously, and winsomely contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Let me close with just three points of application. Three points of application for those who've placed their faith in Christ. First, thanks. Thank God that these things are true of you, brother, sister, that by the grace of God, we are his glad bondservants that he has called us, he's loved us, that we are kept to the very end, preserved and guarded for his glory. God did that. Those are all past tense. It's done, praise God. And he deserves our thanks and praise for that. Secondly, believe. If these things are true of us, then we need to really believe them. That we're called, loved, and kept by and for Jesus. And when the enemy lies to us and tries to get us to believe something about ourselves that is contrary to these truths, we must call a lie a lie and believe our Father and what he says is true about who we are. doesn't matter if you don't feel loved by God. You are. doesn't matter if your faith is weak and you don't think that you'll be able to continue to hang on to Jesus to the end. Trust God that you are kept by and for Jesus, and he will hang on to you. Believe that if Christ is in you by faith, and these things are true of you today, tomorrow, and forever, no matter what happens. And then lastly, pray. Just as Jude prayed that God would multiply mercy, peace, and love for his readers So that they would be able to faithfully and courageously contend for the faith as was so important in that day. So we ought to pray for ourselves and our fellow members in the body of Christ that God would be so kind as to make mercy, peace, and love multiply to us so that we too would contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Give thanks to God for who He's made you to be. Believe that these things are true about you and pray that God would give us More of the same, so that we can be his faithful contenders. And then, for those who have not placed their faith in Christ, you're here, you're considering the claims of Christ. Here's here's what I want to leave with you these things are not true of you. That's the bad news. But they can be. You've heard the external call of the gospel. Is God inwardly calling you right now to come to faith in Jesus? He is your only hope. Friend, if that describes your heart, your application is to repent of your sin and your desire to live your own life your way, to live independently of God and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope. Trust that what he accomplished at the cross, he accomplished to rescue you. Call on him as Lord. Call on him as Savior. And this will be your identity as well. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful. We are so floored. We are so humbled that as believers in Christ, these things are true of us. You've called us to faith. You have loved us with a regenerating and preserving love. A saving love. And you will keep us to the end. Lord, we thank you so much for those truths and those promises. We're thankful, Father, that they mean that we get to be your glad bondservants. And as bondservants, you've called us to contend for the faith. Be with us as a church, Father, as we we press into this letter and seek to bring application to our lives in this world and in this culture to be a people who contend for the faith that you've entrusted to us. May we do this by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.